Hi, this is Nathan. Before we get to the episode, I want to invite you to join me on an incredible adventure this November of 2024. I am taking a small group of believers to Turkey, what the New Testament called Asia Minor, for a 12-day Bible study tour of the early church. We'll be studying the book of Acts and many of the epistles on location as we visit ancient cities like Ephesus, Laodicea, Heropolis, Antioch, Pergamum, and many more. If you are interested in joining me this November for a once-in-a-lifetime adventure as we study where much of the New Testament and early church took place, you can learn more by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. And if you're interested, don't delay. Spots are limited and on a first-come, first-served basis, and a $100 discount is available if you register before May 27th. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode 175 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to talk about the fact that God is the master of breakthroughs. Let's dive in. Years ago, I was studying a passage in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and I was rather blown away by the reality that David says that God is the master of breakthroughs. Well, recently I re-preached that entire message, and I just thought it'd be fun that for the episode today to listen to this message on this idea of God not just being a God of breakthroughs, but that he is the God who is the master of breakthroughs. So as you listen to this message, I would encourage you to ponder your life and what are the areas that God needs to break through in your life. Well, let's dive into the message. Uh, if you have your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, it's interesting that the context of this whole thing is that in the end of 1 Samuel, uh, Saul has died. Uh, Saul was killed up on Mount Gilboa with Jonathan. And of course, David is the true and rightful king. Uh, he has the position. He has been anointed. However, there's a problem. Uh, there's a son of Saul who has basically taken the kingdom and is ruling the kingdom. Now, he's a weak king. He's basically a pawn to Abner. He's just kind of a, he's not what you would consider a good king <laughs> at all. And David is king, sort of. Uh, David was king for seven and a half years of the tribe of Judah. A few of the other clans that kind of got together. And so here is David. He is ruling. He is king, but he's not fully king. Does that make any sense? So he is a king. Uh, he is ruling. Uh, his kingdom has been established. However, he has not been made king over all of Israel yet. And so he goes down to Hebron and, and is, sets up his headquarters, his capital, and for seven and a half years is ruling basically the tribe of Judah from Hebron or Hebron. Now what you find at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 5 is that Saul's other son has now died and David is being ushered in and made king over all of Israel. And so all of Israel gathers together to, to, to David down at Hebron and says, hey, you are the rightful king. We want you as our king. 
And so what you see in uh, chapter 5 of 2 Samuel 1 through 16 is that here they are, they're, they're establishing David's kingdom over all of Israel. There's this massive party that ensues, and they bring out, you know, the Diet 7-Up, and they bring out all the bread and the pastries, and they basically have donuts and Diet 7-Up to celebrate the fact, uh, it was really date cakes, but pastries, right? Uh, so they, they bring out donuts and, and Diet 7-Up to celebrate the fact that David is king over all of Israel, and they have this big, huge festival. <clears throat> what I want to look at with you this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting in verse 17. And so if you have your Bibles, I, I want to start reading from there. Uh, this, is, this is what it says. When the Philistines, who are the enemies, heard that they anointed David king over all of Israel, all of the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard about this and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and were spread out in the valley of the Rephaim. So David asked the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines and will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up for I will doubtlessly deliver them into your hand. So David came to Belperazim and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has breached my enemies before me like the bursting of tides. Therefore, he named that place Belperazim. Then the Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them away. And we actually, by the way, for clarity's sake, in the account in Chronicles, it says that they took the idols away and they burnt them with fire. So they didn't just take the idols, for clarity's sake. They burnt them. Now, verse 22, once again, the Philistines went up and spread out in the valley of the Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them and come up against them opposite the trees. And when you hear the sound of marching at the top of the trees, pay attention, because at that point, the Lord is going before you to defeat the army of the Philistines. So David did just as the Lord commanded, and he defeated the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Now, you could look at that and say, how on earth does that have to deal with prayer? <laughs> and why on earth are we looking at this rather strange passage in 2 Samuel? Thank you for asking. Uh, it's interesting that, again, and we've talked about this so many times, but what is happening in the physical or the external of the Old Testament is a picture of what is to happen in the internal realities of our lives here in the New Covenant. So again, we're talking something that literally, physically, historically happened back here in the Old Testament, and the Philistines rose up and they, they came against David. That physically, literally happened. However, I want you to see the spiritual parallel for your life. Isn't it interesting when the true and rightful king takes his position that the enemies of that true and rightful king rise up against him? I don't know if you've experienced that, especially over your time here at Ellerslie, but it's like the moment you make Jesus king and lord of your entire life, it's like there's something that goes on within you where there's something that rises up and says, no, we do not want that. And you're like, what on earth is going on inside of me? And there's like this little war raging. Now, Paul would say it's a war of flesh and spirit. That you've made Jesus king, and now there's, this, now there's this wrestling on the inside of you where Jesus is to have king over everything. Uh, with the students, we looked at this last week, that this idea that when the, when the Israelites moved into the promised land, right, God gave them this amazing land, this promise. And yet the moment they entered into the land, there were 31 hostile empires they had to deal with. So it wasn't like come into the land and have rest. It was rest. They've been wandering all this time but it's coming to the land and now defeat the enemies. And the same thing happens inside of our lives. We take steps forward in our spiritual life. Jesus is crowned king and suddenly 
he starts putting his finger on these 31 hostile empires that must be dealt with. There are giants in the land. They must be removed. Hey, there are enemies of the Lord. They must be removed. And so as we're walking into the land, right, God deals with Jericho and then he deals with Ai and he begins to walk through these 31 hostile empires. Why? Because they are not to have rule of the land. Same thing's happening in your life. That as you come to Jesus and Jesus is crowned king and Lord of your life, what you begin to recognize is that you're not, you're not perfected. I hate to tell that to you, but you're not perfect. Right? God has stuff he needs to weed out of your life. He has things he needs to sanctify out of your life. He has things that he needs to remove and change and transform in your life. And that's actually a good thing. And you have these 31, and I don't know what the actual number would be in our lives, but, but biblically there was 31 hostile empires. There are, there are enemies of your soul that need to be dealt with. And so what are we experiencing in the Christian life? We're, we're seeing this removal of the enemy faction. Or as we talked about on Tuesdays, Daily Thunder, you're experiencing peace, a greater wholeness, a greater completeness, a greater, a greater removal of that enemy faction. But isn't it interesting in our story, David, who is the true and rightful king, is made king over all of Israel. And suddenly, the first thing that happens is that all the Philistines rise up against him. And my guess, at some level, you probably experience that. That, again, as you begin to take steps forward in your spiritual life, it's like, Whatever it is that has had you, whatever it is, that fleshly stuff of your life, it's like rises up and says, I, no, I don't want to give this up. So look at what happens. Uh, in verse 17, it says that <clears throat> David heard about this and went down into the stronghold. Verse 18, now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of the Rephaim. Now this is interesting to me. Uh, we know that uh, Goliath fought with the Philistines, right? Goliath was a Philistine. And so obviously there were giants amongst the Philistines. But the Valley of the Rephaim, when you trace that back through, it really was the Valley of the Giants. Uh, the Rephaim were these giants, these big, massive, ugly creatures, right? They're giants. And it seems like from the text that it's like an abandoned city. So why would the Philistines come to the Valley of the Rephaim in order to fight David? Well, that's easy. Intimidation. See, if, you're, if you show up at the Valley of the Giants and you're going to be fighting and you're on David's side, there's always a question of, well, we know there's still giants around. I mean, Goliath wasn't that much, you know, earlier before this whole scene. I mean, it's just, you know, a couple dozen years. I mean, hey, I mean, we know that Goliath's brothers are still around and they're being taken care of. So we know there's giants around. Could it be that maybe one of them, you know, they're on vacation they, they left something at home, so they come back to the deserted city and go, oh, yeah, I left the suitcase. And So who knows that if, as we're beginning to fight, we show up and the giants begin to fight with the Philistines. See, it's an intimidation thing. Uh, here's an illustration. Uh, when I was a little kid, there's a movie that came out called Little Giants. And this is cute Disney film about these two football teams. And uh, basically the story goes there was one peewee football team of the city. Had all the strong kids. Whoa, Terrell was a part of it. You know, all those, you know, Philip Hartman was there. I mean, just we had all these big, strong, strong guys. But then there was this group of nerds who really wanted to play football. And they had no muscles. They had no ability. They just, they had nothing. And so they try out for peewee football and they, they, they were cut. There, there was no option. We do not want them on 
We do not want them even sitting on the bench. They will ruin the bench, right? Because our enemies will think, our, the opposing teams will think they can win just by looking at our bench, right? So you cannot be a part of the team. So they get together and they decide they're going to create their own football team. And so all the nerds get together, find the nerd dad, and they have their own nerd team. So this coach comes over to this coach and says, hey, by regulation, the town can only have one peewee football team. And this coach says, well, it's not fair that you're not letting them on the team. And he says, they're not good enough. And he says, well, then let's have a playoff. And whoever wins the playoff, they get to be the peewee football team for this town. And so the big day arrives, and here they are on the field, and you had all these whoa kids, you know, who were like 10 years old, but they still look like Terrell, you know, facial hair and everything, you know. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and you had a whole bunch of kids over here that looked more like me. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, and so these guys are going up against these guys, and it's just, whoa, you know. And, and there's a scene, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. These guys recognize, these little peewee nerdy kids recognize that there is no way they can win against the big strong guys. And so they realize, all right, we're going to have to intimidate them. Well, how on earth is a little nerdy kid who's half the size ever going to intimidate the big guys? And so right before, the, right before the game, they paint their faces, you know, they put tar on or whatever that stuff is they put on football faces. Uh, but then there's a scene where they're in this little huddle, and one of the kids starts passing out Alka-Seltzers. <laughs> and uh, they say, all right, and break! And everyone pops the Alka-Seltzer. And they get down on the line. And as they get down on the line, they start growling at the big guys. And as they're growling, foam starts coming out of their mouths. <laughs> you know, and, and all this... And they look, they look like mad dogs. And they're like, Arr! and they're like, what's going on? And they win the play, right? <laughs> and so it's this whole game of, now you realize the same thing's happening here in our story. The Philistines have no chance. Who are they going against? They're going against David and his God. They have no ability to win this thing. So what are they trying to do? Intimidate. So they find this valley that used to be full of giants, and they say, David, will fight you there. Because if giants do show up, they're going to fight on our side. It's an intimidation thing. So if you look at it, verse 19, it says, David went and asked of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines and will you give them into my hand? I love the fact that David didn't just run out and deal with them. He waited. And he petitioned the Lord and he says, hey, God, what is it that you're wanting to do? How do you want to handle this situation? And look at what God says to David at the end of verse 19, the Lord said to David, go up because I will doubtlessly deliver them into your hand. Isn't that a great statement? God says, I will without a doubt deliver them into your hand. Hey, David, no worries. I'll take care of this. Hey, David, just go and I, and I promise you I'll give them into your hand. Now that word, doubtlessly deliver, when you look that up in the Hebrew, it, I I got a few favorite Hebrew words, like hesed is one of my favorite Hebrew words. This one, though, may actually, this one may actually be my favorite Hebrew word. This word is the verb form of the word Nathan. That's a great word. It's a great word. So that's going to become our new favorite word. Yes, I included you, our favorite word. 
<laughs> so when you look at the word Nathan, the word Nathan means a gift or a gift from God. And I thought my parents did a great job, so thank you. Okay. Ah, it means a gift. It means to give something. This word in the Hebrew, again, it's the verb, so it means to give or to hand over. It's that kind of idea. And what's interesting is when you look at this Hebrew word, there's actually three connotations with this word. And let me give them to you really quickly. God looks at David and says, David, I will, without a doubt, give the Philistines into your hand. And again, there's three ideas associated with this. One, the illustration is like the sun rising in the morning. It's like God looking at David saying, David, just, just look over here. You know that every morning, without a doubt, the sun is going to rise. And just as you know with certainty that the sun is going to come up, right, we can break out a song if you want. Tomorrow, tomorrow, right? Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun, right? I mean, if you're going to have something guaranteed, it's the sun is going to come up tomorrow. So God says, hey, David, hey, promise you, I will hand them over to your hand. Just as the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning, without a doubt. In fact, none of you woke up and said, oh, no, I wonder if the sun's going to come up this morning. Now, you may have said, you know, is it going to be a great sunrise? You may have said, oh, am I going to be able to see it? Or is it going to be overcast? You can say those things, but you know that there's going to be daylight. Why? Because you've never had a day without the daylight. So it's a guarantee. And so it's like God looking at David saying, hey, without a doubt, just as the sun's going to come up in the morning, I promise you, I will deliver them into your hands. That's a strong promise. Another one of those ideas associated with that word is this idea of a tree bearing fruit. And it's like this idea of, hey, David, you know that at a certain time of the year, a healthy tree, without a doubt, will produce fruit. Hey, you don't have to worry about it. Because you know that at this time of year, this tree, if it's healthy, will always produce fruit. David, just as you know that, I promise you, I will deliver them into your hands. And the third idea is the idea of a promise. It's like the same kind of a promise that God gave Abraham where he says, Abraham, I promise that I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And he's like looking at David saying, David, hey, look around you. I have fulfilled that promise that you are surrounded by millions of Israelites, that, that here you are, the king over all of Israel. And I have fulfilled that promise to Abraham. And just as I was faithful back then, so I will be faithful now. David, I will doubtlessly deliver the Philistines into your hand. Now, if God said that to you, how would you go into battle? I mean, if you knew there was no way to lose, if you knew that you, were, you could walk with confidence into the battle and the, and, and, the, and the battle was guaranteed, wouldn't you walk with confidence? Wouldn't you walk with boldness? Wouldn't you just be like, we can do this? In fact, personally, if I was David, I would have looked at my troops and been like, take the day off. I'm going to go fight because God guaranteed it. And my best friend Jonathan just said that God can win with many or with few. So let's see what he does. You sit here, I'll go to battle. And let's see what God does. He's, he's guaranteed the victory. Now, that's not what happened. But that's what I would have done if God guaranteed. So look at, look at this. Verse 20. So David came to this valley of the Rephaim, and David defeated the Philistines there. And look at how David describes this whole battle scene. He says, The Lord breached my enemies before me like the bursting of tides. Therefore, he renamed the place Baal Perazim. 
So the place was called the Valley of the Rephaim. And David looked at what God did there in, in the defeat of the enemies, and it was such a bursting of the tides that he says, we're going to have to rename this place because no longer can it be known as the Valley of the Giants. Now it has to be known as Belperazim. Uh, the word Perazim, uh, Judah had a son. If you remember this whole saga, right? Judah had, this, had twins by Tamar, which was his daughter-in-law. And when, when, her, when she gave birth, one of the son's names was Perez. And they named him Perez because he broke through. The word Perez in the Hebrew has this idea, it's a breakthrough. Uh, and there's two ideas. One, you could, il- illustrations at least. One, you can think of it in terms of like uh, a dam, right? You have this reservoir and there's this big brick wall. And of course, in the cartoons, right, there's always this little spray. Psst. And so the cartoon walks over there and sticks his finger in the, in the dam, in the hole. But that causes another little, psst. so he goes, right? And then there's another one, so, right? And then eventually there's this rumble, usually in the cartoons, like, and then suddenly there's a breakthrough. And all the cement breaks and the dam explodes and the water is, that's this word. Uh, the other way this word is used, typically biblically, is the idea of pregnancy. Now, I've never been pregnant, praise the Lord. <laughs> but from what I've been told, there comes a point when even if the woman wanted to hold in the baby, she can't. There's a breakthrough coming. It's happening. That's this word. I'll stop there. But that's this word. That's this idea. So could you imagine what, what David is saying is that how did God handle the Philistines? Well, God handled the Philistines in such a way that when David looked at it, there was this breaking through of water, that there was, that there was no way to hold it back, that God did something incredible. And because of that, because there's a breakthrough, David says, hey, we're going to have to rename this place. Because it's always been known as the Valley of Giants. It's always been the place of in- intimidation. It's always been a stronghold of the enemy. But God has done su- such a marvelous work in the stronghold of the enemy that we're now going to have to change it from the stronghold of the enemy to Belperazim. And the word Belperazim means the master of breakthroughs. He says, do you know who our God is? God is the master of breakthroughs. Uh, I lock my keys in the car. And so I call a locksmith. And I say, hey, could you come over and somehow you know, unlock my car so I can get in? And a locksmith can unlock a car. I call the same locksmith and I say, hey, I've got a safe that I need to break into. Legally. And he says, well, I can't do that. I said, why not? He goes, I'm just a locksmith. He goes, you're going to have to call a master locksmith. What's a master locksmith? Well, a master locksmith means there is no lock that he can't get into, that he has mastered all locks, which means, hey, give him any challenge, give him any safe, give him any any lock, he can get into it. Do you realize that God isn't just a God of breakthroughs? He's the master of breakthroughs, which means there is no situation, there's no circumstance, there's no trial there's no anything in your life that he can't break through in why because he's the master of breakthroughs well i've got this big challenge i know that i got this big circumstance i know that look at the finances i know that look at my family member i know that i get it 
But you realize that there's no circumstance or situation or trial or person in your life that God can't break through in. Why? Because he's not just a God of breakthroughs. He is the master of breakthroughs. And wouldn't it be amazing in your life if the areas that have always been known as defeat, the areas that has always been known as the strongholds of the enemy, the, the areas that have always been named the valley of the giants, what if God could do such a marvelous breakthrough in those areas that you would have to rename those areas of your life from the valley of the giants to God as a master of breakthroughs? See, wouldn't it be amazing if he could take your pride or your lust or your greed or your whatever it is that you're dealing with and take that valley of the giants area of your life and turn it into, that he does such a breakthrough that he just turns it into this marvelous picture of his redeeming power? That when someone looks at your life, they no longer see the areas of depravity. They no longer see these areas of giants. They go, wow, your life is like a life of breakthrough. I know. Do you know why? Because my God is a master of breakthroughs. Now, it's interesting to me that as the story goes on, of course, David just you know, takes the idols, and of course, Chronicles tells us they burn the idols according to the law. So they didn't take the idols for themselves, that they burnt the idols, just for clarity's sake. But it says in verse 22 that not long afterwards, the Philistines rise up again. So they're trying this whole thing again. <laughs> as if they didn't learn the first time. And where do they go? They went to the very same place. And so David, isn't it interesting that David didn't just go, well, God defeated him there the first time. Let's just deal with him a second time. That he waited patiently upon the Lord and says, God, what do you want to do this time? It's interesting to me that Moses did not get to enter into the promised land because he did not obey. That they needed water, and so Moses goes to God and says, God, we need some water. And God says, great. You have a staff? Tap that rock, water will pour forth. So he taps the rock, water pours forth. Forty years later, they're needing water. And Moses goes, hey, God, we need water. God says, great, there's a rock, speak to it. And Moses goes, I know what I'm supposed to do. And he taps the rock with the staff. And God says, that's not what I wanted you to do. Isn't it interesting that David didn't get in front of what God's plan was? That here is the exact same situation, here's the exact same people, here's the exact same location. And yet David didn't just presume that God was going to do the exact same thing. I love when you look at the life of Jesus, that Jesus dealt with blind people all the time. And yet you read the different accounts of how he dealt with blind people, and they're like, they're all different. One person he spoke. One person he said, go down and wash. One person he spat on the ground, made mud, and put it on his face. That is nasty. I've been like, you keep your own spit. I'll be blind. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> In other words, it's not that God does the same thing every time. God has only used a burning bush once, folks, as far as I know. So you got to recognize that even if it's the same situation in the same location with the same people, God may want to do a very different thing. And so David waits upon the Lord again and says, hey, what do you want to do this time? And God says, you shall not go up. What? Well, last time you promised, hey, you doubtlessly deliver. We went down there. We just, hey, we just ransacked them. And God says, I know, but they came back. Well, what do you want to do this time, God? God says, oh, how about this? I will go down before you, and I will take my army down before you. And you're going to hear this marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. And when you hear the tops of the, the marching in the mulberry trees, then you come down and you join us for our battle. And God says, I'll handle it. 
And so David waited patiently. They heard the marching on the tops of the mulberry trees. They went down and fought. And it says in verse 25 that David did just as the Lord commanded, and he defeated the Philistines and literally drove them back from Geba as far as Gezer, which means he drove them back to where they came from. Wouldn't it be neat if God could do that in your life? Wouldn't it be neat if the same thing you're having to deal with, God says, oh, let me take care of it this time. And you get to participate. David participated in the second time. But David fought the battle. Sorry, God fought the battle. David just participated. Uh, For the students, we're going to be talking about prayer this evening. Can I give you a concept when it comes to prayer in light of this passage? So oftentimes when we come to God in prayer, we, we come to God with this hopeful attitude. But it's under, the undercurrent of it is still doubt. Uh, God, I have this situation in my life and I really need you to handle it. Could you, maybe, could you potentially do something? I don't know if you can, but maybe, maybe, sort of, could you? Do you know who you're praying to? You are praying to the master of breakthroughs. You are praying to the one who holds all things in his hands. You are are praying to the one where there's not a situation or a circumstance or a person or a trial or a financial thing that God cannot move in the middle of. He can break through in that. And he's not just a God of breakthroughs. He is the master of breakthroughs. And what would it look like in our prayer lives as as when we come to God that we understand that we are praying to the master of breakthroughs? You realize you can enter into the throne room boldly, as Hebrews says, and you can pray with confidence. Why? Because you know who your God is. And what would happen is if you came to God and said, God, look, I don't know what you want to do in this situation, but I know you can handle it. So God, you are the master of breakthroughs. And I need a breakthrough. So would you move? Would you change hearts? And I understand a flat tire is still a flat tire and we're going to have to deal with the flat tires, but in the middle of the flat tire, could you do something that is beyond my understanding? God, there's a situation, there's these people I'm dealing with. God, could you move in the situation? And I'm not saying it's going to be resolved, and I understand it may take some time, and I, I realize we may have to walk through this thing, but in the middle of all this, could you be the breakthrough that we need? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be a fascinating if instead of coming to God with this hopeful, doubtful attitude of, God, I don't know if you can, but could you potentially maybe sort of, maybe, could you try something? What if you'd say, God, I know who you are. And I realize that whether you solve this issue immediately or not, I can trust you. But my petition is that you get smack dab in the middle of it and that you would be the breakthrough that we need. That would change how you prayed. That, that would change how you begin to see who your God is. You begin to look at your circumstances entirely different. When you begin to realize this, this is not a hopeless situation. You have a God who can break through. And maybe he's allowing you to go through a season that feels like it just never ends. Trust him. Because he can break through. But maybe he's wanting to teach you something. God often doesn't remove our problems. He's not interested in merely having us live a life of ease and comfort He wants us to grow into holy, godly men and women. And one of the best ways for that to happen is to put challenges in front of us because it sanctifies us. It rubs those rough edges off. So if you're going through a long season of trial or hardship, delight in it. God, I trust that because I'm still in this, 
I'm supposed to learn something from this. You're, you're, you're doing something in this. And this is hard. This stinks. But God, you are a God of breakthroughs. And I trust in your timing. So until then, I'm going to lean upon your strong arm. I'm going to put my gaze upon you and trust you. Because I trust that you're in the middle of this and you have a plan in the middle of this. And your plan isn't necessarily how fast can I get out of this as much as what do you want to do in my life through this? Your God is the master of breakthroughs. Well, I hope that message was just an encouragement, an exhortation to your soul. And I pray that God is revealing areas of your life that he wants to be the master of breakthrough in. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 175 for episode 175. And until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around the master breakthroughs, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.